Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is The Josh Hammer Show. If you live in a big city, hell, if you actually live in a smaller or mid-sized city, you have probably noticed it's not going very well. Urban America, for a period of time, seemed like it actually was going well. You know, I grew up in the New York City suburbs. I haven't lived there in a while now, but I grew up in the suburbs. And I kind of came of age in the aftermath of the Rudy Giuliani revolution in New York City. You know, before he became what he is now and make of Rudy what you will, he was a deeply effective mayor. He cleaned up New York City better than it was in God knows how long, in in decades, perhaps even in centuries. Well, unfortunately, New York City, along with virtually every other mid-sized to large city in America, has totally fallen off the deep end over the past five, ten years or so. And it's been for a variety of factors. You have dramatic, pervasive, dare I say, ubiquitous homelessness that is all over various downtown areas. I lived in Denver, Colorado for a little while. I saw myself. It is absolutely abominable. You have the drug crisis. Drugs, needles, festooned everywhere. Have, has anyone been to San Francisco over the past few years? It looks like a third world war zone in many ways. It is absolutely despicable, the drugs that are flowing in and out of these cities, urged on no doubt by the homelessness encampments in those various cities. And to top it all off, the cherry on top of the cake, the proliferation of Democrat prosecutors, so-called reform prosecutors, who are ironically elected to office on a platform of not actually prosecuting crime. It has really created an urban hellhole in much of big blue city America. Fortunately, we have the perfect guy to join us today to talk about why this happened and what we can do about it. That is Jason Rance. He is the host of the Jason Rance Show on AM 770 KTH Seattle and the author of the brand new book, What's Killing America Inside the Radical Left's Tragic Destruction of Our Cities. Jason is based in Seattle. He has seen it firsthand for himself. Very few cities have felt the brunt of this, like Seattle, Washington, like Portland, Oregon. We're going to get into it with Jason when it comes to homelessness, when it comes to drug policy, and when it comes to this problem of Soros-funded so-called reform prosecutors. Is it ever going to change? I sure hope so. We will find out right after this what Jason thinks, though. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. 
CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. The Josh Hammer Show. We are thrilled to bring back to the show today someone who I think I get the good fortune of being able to call a friend at this point. He is Jason Rance. He is the host of the Jason Rance Show on AM 770 KTTH Seattle, for whom I am thrilled and honored to have the opportunity to guest host for every so often. And he is here to discuss his brand new book, What's Killing America Inside the Radical Left's Tragic Destruction of Our Cities. Jason, thanks so much for rejoining the Josh Hammer Show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Let's kind of just start off at the beginning. I'm I'm curious if there was any one incident in particular that really kind of galvanized you to start writing this book. You've been living in the blue enclave of, of Seattle for a long time now. We've seen a lot of your kind of man on the street style reporting, I think, back to kind of the summer of 2020 and, and, and the riots. And, and all that there. But I'm, I'm curious if there was any, if there was one thing in particular that w- that you kind of came home at night and you were like, damn, like I really have to write a book about how Seattle and all these blue cities are just being utterly destroyed. It, it wasn't necessarily one thing. It was a series of one things, right? Where I cover a lot of these issues on my show for Fox News, the kind of issues that are deeply impacting cities. And I started to recognize that there was a clear pattern that the script was almost already written. We knew exactly what was going to happen as a result of uh, a policy that was implemented or a law that was changed and recognizing that people weren't closely following what's going on in their name. Everyone generally has an understanding if you live in one of these big Democrat run cities that things aren't the way that they used to be, right? That crime is going up, you're taking your kid to a park and you find it's been taken over by homeless. You have drug addiction through the roof. And yet, weirdly enough, you're paying through the roof to live in these cities that are becoming increasingly hostile to your family's safety. And as I asked some people just locally what they thought about certain policies, and they were like, wait, what? Huh? They had no idea what I was talking about. And I realized that the reason why we're in a position that we're in is that people just aren't connecting the dots. And I'll give you a perfect example. I talk a lot about drug overdoses in the book, the drug, the the war on the war on drugs. And we've implemented something across the country called harm reduction. Now, I can go outside right now and grab any random Seattleite and they're the wokest of the woke. They're not going to be able to tell me what harm reduction is. And I'm willing to bet that every single or almost nearly everybody who's listening right now on this podcast, they don't know what harm reduction is. Well, guess what? That's the reason why we have the drug overdose problem that we have. Harm reduction is a strategy in which we allow people to use government resources to continue to get high, to continue their addiction. We give out needles, we give out crack pipes, we give out something called booty bumping kits, which was a fun explanation that I was able to give on Tucker Carlson to 3 million people. (laughs) But that's what's being done. And on paper, when this is pitched to people, The radical leftists will tell you that this is about saving lives. We're going to get people into treatment. This is our compassionate way uh, and innovative way of addressing the drug crisis. 
On paper, it sounds great, particularly to just your average Democrat, who obviously is like your average Republican in the sense that they want what's best for people. They maybe just disagree on how to get there. But it's not compassionate. It doesn't work. They're not pushing treatment whatsoever. And the examples I give in the book are from everywhere, from Seattle and New York to Santa Barbara and Chicago. I mean, these are not policies that are just being imposed in these blue areas. Counties that are purple will have them. Counties that are red sometimes will have these policies in place and they're not working. But if you don't know that harm reduction is responsible, you're not going to be able to hold anyone to account. I was going to say it's funny. I mean, it's not funny because like real people are dying here, obviously. Um, I know that all too well. I mean, my cousin actually tragically overdosed from a fentanyl uh, induced overdose. May his memory be a blessing. This was almost six years ago now. So I definitely do not want to make any light of this whatsoever. But the, the booty bumping thing was almost funny. And I think back to this tweet that I saw it was like a year and a half ago or so. So in, in the city of Chicago, they have a major music festival every I think it's every year called Lollapalooza. I'm not a big music festival guy myself, but this is definitely one of the more popular ones. And the city of Chicago, I think working hand in hand with the CPD, the Chicago Police Department, had this outrageous tweet. It, I mean, it was getting ratio of the crap out of it I, on, on Twitter, basically saying that if you are going to use, you know, X, Y, Z drugs, be sure to take drugs responsibly. And it, it defeats the entire purpose. Of what of what a public policy is supposed to do on this particular front, I'm curious if if over the course of this book, because this public drug overdose crisis is something, as I said, for personal reasons, if nothing else, I've just become very passionate about over the past few years. When did you start to see that there, that there was a paradigm shift? I mean, obviously, kind of the "just say no" Nancy Reagan campaign that was 30 years ago at this point. But when did we really start to see this deeply toxic mentality of, okay, it's actually okay? To use drugs, just be safe. I mean, what was that like the past five, 10 years or so? About the last 10 years, you started to see the introduction of heroin injection sites. And certainly here in the Pacific Northwest, folks were turning towards what's been going on in Vancouver, British Columbia. And everyone in this country, all the hardcore progressives, they like to out progressive each other. And so you had a bunch of cities competing to become the first to bring heroin injection sites to their cities. And so you had Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Philadelphia, actually going out to Vancouver and, and experiencing what happened there and then came back here claiming that it was a huge success. Now, I, I knew that that was false because I, too, went up to Vancouver to check out what it was like. And I write about it in the book. It, it was a total nightmare. It, it was just sad. These policies have been discussed for a while. They've been implemented to a certain degree for a long time. The, the idea of giving out clean needles started with folks who, who were, were basically saying it'll be an exchange. So you give me your, your used needle, we'll dispose of it safely, and we'll give you a clean one. Except Shockingly, they were not returning them. They were just the, the addicts were just leaving them in parks and alleyways on sidewalks. And rather than rethink the whole idea, they just said, oh, OK, never mind. We'll just give you even more. You don't have to turn them in anymore. So there was no benefit to society at all when doing this. But what I, I think a lot of people started to notice was the rapid continuation and expansion of these kinds of programs during COVID. And COVID was used as an excuse. I remember, and I, again, I talk about this in the book, but I remember a local story where King County Public Health, which is where Seattle is, 
basically created their Uber version of drug paraphernalia. They were going out into the communities and handing out clean needles and other kits. And they were also giving them to kids. Any child can come up of any age and ask for it and they would give it to them. That's their policy. So for a lot of folks started to get them concerned when they were going into their own neighborhoods and they saw used needles just strewn around any everywhere. They started to do their own digging and they realized what was going on, but they didn't realize that this had been going on for a long time. It just worsened during COVID. And, you know, when we had a bunch of lockdowns and people weren't going to work or didn't have the same work schedule, you had a lot more free time to notice a lot of these things. And and the folks who noticed, they started to push back. But again, on on paper, the whole concept of harm reduction sounds great. And, And they'll tell you over and over and over again that they've seen huge successes, except because the left has taken over language, they redefine success. To you and I, and to most people listening, we would probably say it's successful if people were treated for their addiction. If you came to me and said the harm reduction approach ends addiction in 30% of the people it's used on. Okay, I will stop and think about that. I, I might not still agree at 30% that it's worth it, but I would at least have a meaningful self-discussion as to whether or not I think I'm on the right side of this. But they don't have that data. They, they tell you that they do, but they don't actually have that data because now they consider success keeping someone from overdose. That's not success. Sorry, that, that is keeping someone addicted to a drug that will ultimately claim their life the second that they use when there isn't a medical professional around or the second that they do spread disease because they're using a used needle because they're desperate for that next high. Or, of course, because of fentanyl, they take a pill that they don't realize is laced as much as it is with fentanyl and then they just die of an overdose. The response from the radicals who support harm reduction is, well, we should just give out more Narcan and everyone should be carrying Narcan. Sorry, again, that's not acceptable to me. I'm not saying Narcan is not a good tool to stop some opioid overdoses, but that can't be the only thing. We went from accepting a a reasonable position of wanting people to get the help that they need to get over their addiction. And we know that there's going to be bumps along the way and we'll we'll cope with that. And, And maybe we'll even compromise so long as they're getting the help. We're not getting any help. And what I cover in the book, at least in this chapter of the book, Some of the reasons behind harm reduction has to do with just not wanting to stigmatize drug addicts. And it's just it's absurd. I mean, if you have a very painful infection, I mean, call whatever you want. Let's say you have strep throat, if you have an ear infection, sinus infection, any other kind of infection. I mean, it's basically like taking Advil to make the pain go away for an hour or two. But like, dude, like you need to go to the hospital. I mean, you need an antibiotic for that. I mean, like this kind of short term stuff to temporarily make you feel better is going to do absolutely nothing unless you make the underlying disease or virus actually go away. I mean, it's totally not getting to the root of the issue. And as far as kind of public policy is concerned, it's just prioritizing the complete wrong thing. I mean, I I would love to go back to the days of just say no. I guess just staying on the topic, maybe just for one more question, then we'll kind of transition over to crime, which is uh, another favorite topic of, I think, both of ours. But staying on the drug question, do you think that these skyrocketing numbers, and the numbers are really just gruesome. We had another radio host by the name of Seth Leapson, a real gentleman down in Phoenix, Arizona, who's also passionate about this oh. issue. Yeah, he's, Seth is fantastic. He was on the show earlier this year. And you know, if, if I recall from Seth, the numbers are, in, in 1992, by the end of the 12 years of Reagan Bush, the Just Say No Nancy Reagan campaign, all of that, we had 5,000 roughly drug overdose deaths in America. But 
the data from 2022, which I believe is the last year for which we have full year data, 105 to 110,000 drug overdose deaths. I mean, it's equivalent of airplanes falling out of the sky full of predominantly young Americans on a given day. This is the number one public health crisis in America, from my perspective, period, full stop, end of story. Do you think that conservatives realize like the stakes of what is going on here? Because it's, it's probably disproportionately, I would think, often kind of like rural, probably red state communities, frankly, that, that are being afflicted by the fentanyl crisis, even more so than kind of inner city blue circles. But do you think that our colleagues on the right understand the stakes here, Jason? I don't think that they do. And your point is very valid when looking specifically at red states. I look at policy decisions that are made and I look at policy decisions leading to overdoses because that to me seems like an avoidable crisis, right? When you have a closed border and you're not letting fentanyl in, that's fewer pills circulating, killing people. I mean, in in 2022, it was something like 73,000 plus of those dead addicts that you just mentioned were from fentanyl overdose. I mean, think about that. 73,000 from just from fentanyl. Unbelievable. And we have an open border in which it's very easy to carry fentanyl pills across. They're coming into our communities. It's not just staying in blue cities and states, going into red states as well. I think that when you have a strategy that continues to enable addicts, you're just making the crisis worse. At the same time, of course, we have homelessness that's out of control, that's driven in large part due to the drug addiction crisis that we have. I think that there's a general understanding that something is wrong, but not necessarily an understanding of the why or the what. And I think that that's a big reason why we haven't seen significant victories around drug addiction, because I think the average person is on the side of reason and sanity, but they don't know what's going on. And that's why, at least for the chapter on drugs, I wrote What's Killing America. Uh, Do you think that that the influence of kind of the more libertarian leaning criminal justice reform folks continues to be a problem for the right? So, I mean, for many years, the the criminal justice reform crowd was really kind of making inroads. A lot of it was kind of based out of the the right on crime, uh, which division of, of the Texas Public Policy Foundation down Texas, it kind of spread it at the national level. It led to the First Step Act on, on, under President Trump here. Um, last question real quick on this one, then I promise we'll, we'll get to the crime issue. But do you worry at all about the lingering effects maybe of this more libertarian leaning mentality on the drug question specifically, because I think a lot of the more libertarian leaning elements of the right, you know, peddle this line that no one should be incarcerated for a low level drug offense. And it's kind of a false talking point for myriad reasons here. But does that still kind of influence the median conservative or Republicans thinking when it comes to drug policy? I I don't know if I would blame it or any influence necessarily predominant influence from libertarian views, but I would I would say we've certainly seen a cultural shift amongst generations of Americans where, you know, before fentanyl was a thing, before the country was even talking in a meaningful way about heroin and cocaine to the extent that we are now or meth, there was this push to normalize marijuana use, right? That marijuana is not uh deadly addictive that adults should be able to make a choice. And I think that that's certainly an argument that both a liberal and a conservative could get behind. Sure. But because we went so over the top with the cultural shift around marijuana, people just didn't stop there. It just continued to snowball. 
into accepting all these other drugs. There's a whole party culture associated with ecstasy. And so you have like younger generations of people who basically support in, in a general sense, legalized drug use, but they don't realize the damage that it's causing because, you know, especially when you're young and you hold that position, you're not really paying attention to all of that stuff that's happening as a consequence around you. You're kind of in your own little bubble and then you get into the real world and you realize, oh, maybe we should not have gone in that direction. So I think it's more around marijuana than it was around libertarian views. Certainly conservatives have that some conservative at least have that influence amongst them. I don't know if they recognize sure, it. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, point well taken. So we have Jason Rand on with us. He's the host of the Jason Rand Show on AM 770 KTTH Seattle and the author of the brand new book, What's Killing America Inside the Radical Left's Tragic Destruction of Our Cities. We're going to take it to a very quick commercial break here. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more from Jason. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Josh Hammer Show. Jason, let's talk now about another topic you cover in the book here, which is an, an issue I know that you've covered for many years, which is homelessness in, in large blue urban cities. I, for the life of me, have no idea what to actually do about this problem. Everyone knows that the vast majority of homeless people in large cities, in large blue cities, are, are either mentally ill and or drug addicts. But short of liberalizing or I guess deliberalizing the civil commitment laws, which were largely liberalized in the 1960s and making it easier to put people in asylums, mental asylums. Short of that, I, I just have no idea what to do about this problem. I'm curious what your thoughts are and what we should basically do about homelessness, I guess. Yeah, well, it's a combination of what we shouldn't do and what we should do, right? So on the one hand, what we shouldn't do is continue to take on what was adopted during COVID, which was a, a very laissez-faire approach to homelessness. You have some folks who want to stop sweeps. And as a result of that, homeless people realize that, oh, I can just stay here forever and I don't really need to try. You've got a lot of folks who are dealing, of course, with mental illness or drug addiction. You've got other folks who just feel lost and they don't think that anything can ever happen for them again. And when you give up on them, which is precisely what you're doing when you say we're not going to condone sweeps, you're not going to pressure them into shelter. They're just going to fall deeper into that hole. And what we've seen over COVID in major cities was, yeah, we're not going to move anybody. We're not going to put them into congregate shelter because they might get COVID. And of course, if they get COVID, they'll immediately die. That was the position that they were taking. And again, they went overboard with it, but that's why public homelessness has exploded in the way that it has. One thing that we know works because it's been tried and tested and in the places that are doing it, it works. You take a carrot and stick approach. You can't allow them 
to go consequence free. And I cover specific stories out of Austin, Texas, out of Marysville, Washington, in which that approach has been taken either in uh, at a government level or in the nonprofit sector. And they're seeing results, including for people who are dealing with addiction, because if you put some consequences on their behavior, well, now they have something at stake. When we legalized drugs, it made that much more difficult for cops to to leverage jail time to go after a dealer, which could have helped stem the tide of, of, of the homelessness crisis. So we know what works and we know what doesn't work. We know what's behind the ideological position of radicals who are against the sweeps. They, they hold positions on housing. They, they have this is another one of those terms housing first. Again, I'm willing to bet the vast majority of people don't know what that is, and I'm willing to bet that if they read about it on paper and the so-called success stories, they would probably be convinced that this is the right move. Housing first means what it suggests, which is first we put someone in a home or a shelter space, uh, usually an apartment or a homeless hotel room, and then we get them the help that they need. Because if you're not going to bring them indoors first, you're you're never going to be able to truly help them. And it sounds great on paper. They say, hey, Salt Lake City did this in a big way, and they got to functional zero. And so I started looking into Salt Lake City in particular. I ended up writing an entire chapter on it, which was not my intent going into the book, because it was a total failure. It was an abject total failure. And yet they said at the time that we got to a functional zero homelessness rate, but they were looking at apples to orange comparisons. They were comparing chronic homelessness to someone who was homeless for like a weekend. And that's how they ended up getting those numbers. Since they implemented this several years ago, every single year since, it has been worse and worse and worse, the homelessness crisis. And people have complained and complained and complained, and they've been ignored and ignored and ignored. And yet the folks who push housing first continue to pursue their policies by pointing to Salt Lake and their success stories. And so, again, if we don't know that, if we don't know the failures, if we don't know why it's a failure, if we don't know the language that's used on the left, if we can't decode that language, we're never going to be able to win these battles. And I just found on this issue, like so many others, people just didn't have the information. They they knew in their heart that something wasn't working, but they couldn't quite figure it out. And now they can't. You know, Jason, uh, another topic that you cover in the book uh, at some length, and you know, it's a topic that I know, that I know you cover essentially every day on on your show, and we cover on this show a lot as well, is the crime pandemic in in inner city America, which has absolutely skyrocketed in the aftermath, of course, of the George Floyd riots of 2020 or so. And I, I guess cutting to the chase here, my my question for you would be. You know, uh, there's that old H.L. Mencken saying that, you know, democracy, I'm paraphrasing here, but democracy is kind of just giving it to the voters good and hard based on what they vote for. Will people stop voting for these outrageous Soros funded prosecutors who ironically run for office on a prosecutorial platform of actually not prosecuting crimes? I mean, these images and videos coming out of inner city America, Chicago, New York, Portland, Los Angeles, St. Louis, Detroit, whatever, increasingly just galling makes your skin just absolutely want to crawl here. So will people ever stop voting for this complete anti-prosecutorial insanity? If you teach them what to look for, do you think anyone knows what restorative justice is? I don't. I don't think people realize what that is. And I think that when they're pitched the idea of restorative justice, it sounds really compelling to them. We want to keep you out of jail. We want to do what we can to get you the help that we need, that you need. We're going to put you with a group of 
uh, stakeholders in the community. We're going to connect you with your local religious leader. We're going to connect you with a psychologist or a doctor, whatever it is you need. And rather than jail, we're going to give you this holistic approach and we're going to end up getting you on the right path. Again, does not work when we're talking about violent criminals, nor should we even be willing to test that out on violent criminals. It's a great program for the 16-year-old kid who is popped for stealing a you know, a Kit Kat from a 7-Eleven. But when that kid brings a weapon and then shoots at the clerk, yeah, that person should not be going into restorative justice. Same thing with adults. And yet that's precisely what's going on because you've got abolitionists who are in positions of power. They win you over by telling you that they're doing something innovative. They're doing something to truly go after the crime crisis because our criminal justice system is inherently racist and we have to stop that. There are too many black and brown people in jail. Didn't you learn anything from George Floyd? They took advantage of that in a big way and they ended up implementing a lot of these policies. And the idea that people are just going to be able to find out who George Soros is donating to is just absurd. People aren't going to do that research. And the fact of the matter is you've got folks who don't need George Soros money to get into elected office because they're already on the far left and they're around people who already believe what they believe. And that, that's one of those roles. Prosecutors are easy to abuse because there's very little oversight. There's almost no accountability except during election season. So you've got these people who have got a lot of power who convince folks that what they're doing is compassionate when it is not. And it's failed where it's happened. And again, people don't know the why. We all know what's going on. We know that there's a crime issue. Right. We're seeing the stories. But especially when we're talking about Democrat cities, you know, when you're voting in an election, you're you're voting between two Democrats. So how do you know which one is the radical and which one is the the more moderate? It's not that easy if you don't know the language that they use and you don't know what's motivating them. Well, fortunately, Jason, we have your brand new book. Again, that book is What's Killing America Inside the Radical Left's Tragic Destruction of Our Cities. Thankfully, we have your book to help teach them what to actually look for. And God willing, we will start to get some better or at least less catastrophic results from inner city, blue city, America. Jason Rance, host of the Jason Rance show on AM 770 KTGH Seattle. Go ahead and check out his new book, What's Killing America. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Josh Hammer Show. We recorded an episode earlier this week 
on the war in the Middle East and these unspeakable acts, these absolutely indescribable acts of utter, utter barbarian, medieval, genocidal Islamism, jihadism that have been committed against the Jewish state of Israel and against the Israeli people. By the time this is all said and done, over the entire length of the Second Intifada that lasted from 2000 to 2005, almost five years, what happened on a single day, October 7, 2023, will have been just as bloody and gory. It's really, really, really just hard to fathom there. You can go ahead and check out that other episode that we already recorded for our immediate aftermath. Here, I want to kind of dive into the broader background here. I have noticed over the past few years that there is a wild, wild lack of understanding when it comes to Israel, when it comes to the Palestinian Arabs, when it comes to the broader Israeli-Palestinian conflict. To an extent, I actually do not blame those who may be underinformed or misinformed on this issue. The reason that I do not necessarily blame everyone, certainly I blame some who are willfully disinformed or misinformed, but I don't blame everyone because there are so many institutional actors when it comes to this particular issue, from the corporate press to the think tanks to the academy, obviously, which is as bad as it gets on this issue, this appalling, egregious letter at Harvard University, 30, 40 student groups essentially defending radical Islamic jihad, horrific stuff. There are so many actors that are committed to bamboozling you and gaslighting you and just giving you straight up lies just straight up untruths and falsehoods when it comes to the history of this conflict. So I don't necessarily blame everyone for being underinformed on this. But what, let's just take a few minutes here. This happens to be a topic that I have written and spoken about at great length, most recently in an essay at the National Interest about three years ago where I really kind of dove into the actual international law when it comes to Judea and Samaria, a.k.a. what most of the world refers to as the quote-unquote West Bank. Let's talk about this just a little bit here. The last pre-1948 Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel, in, in the Holy Land, the land between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, ended in the year 70 with the Romans' destruction of the Second Temple. And for almost 2,000 years, that land changed the hands of battling empires, whether they were pagans, Christians, Romans, Arabs, Persians. There were lots and lots of empires that ruled over that land. The last half of the last millennium, roughly, so call it from the you know, 15, 1600s up until... 1917, or at least really up until kind of the end of World War One, more accurately, it was ruled by the Ottoman Empire, which today Turkey would be the fallout of of the Ottoman Empire. Well, in the aftermath of World War One, when the European powers started to carve up the Middle East, namely under the Sykes-Picot Agreement, that was the agreement that was led by the French and the British. This was when the European powers started to divvy up 
the Middle East. The Middle East was a hot mess in, in World War One, And in the interwar years, this is when this started to take hold. Well, you first had the Balfour Declaration of 1917, 13 years after the death of Theodore Herzl, the first great Zionist visionary and writer. The Balfour Declaration, Balfour Declaration was kind of Britain's, the United Kingdom's first assertion of the notion that there will be a, quote, national home for the Jewish people in the area between the river and the sea, between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. And as it turned out, I formalized a few years later at the San Remo Conference of 1920, you had the formation of what was then known as the British Mandate for Palestine. This is kind of the twilight years of the British Empire, the British Empire being one of the largest landowners in, in the history of the world. These are the ending years of the British Empire. I guess you could argue the British Empire still exists in a much smaller version. We're not going to be petty and get into that there. The British Mandate for Palestine under the post-World War I borders. This is, this is a crucial point here. The, the British mandate for Palestine was actually formally divided itself. It was further divided between mandatory Palestine and the Emirate of Transjordan. Under the terms of the San Remo Conference of 1920 and the League of Nations, which was the predecessor to the United Nations, the quote unquote Jewish home was to be mandatory Palestine. The other, the Emirate of Transjordan, which subsequently over the decades became Jordan, was what actually today we would refer to as the quote unquote Palestinian state. Mandatory Palestine in the aftermath of the San Remo Conference of 1920 was essentially coinciding with the borders of the land of Israel, what we Jews refer to as Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. And the borders of the latter, again, were the kingdom of Jordan. This was the contiguous Palestinian state that you hear all about. There has never, ever, ever been, ever, in the history of the world, a sovereign, quote-unquote, Palestinian state. Now, it is worth noting that for hundreds of years, really for 2,000 years after the Roman conquest up until the formation of the modern state of Israel in 1948, including even the British Mandate, that area there between the river and the sea was referred to as Palestine. One of the largest newspapers in Israel today is the Jerusalem Post. You know what the Jerusalem Post was called before it was called the Jerusalem Post? It was the Palestine Post. Do you think the editors and writers of that newspaper were Arabs? No, they were Jews. It was the Palestine Post because Palestine, for thousands of years, was the Romanized version, the Romanized word, for Israel, for the Holy Land. The land that Joshua, follower of Moses, crossed into, led the Israelites into, as we just learned in the Haftar this past week, I might add. Go back to the 1930s. You will see the uniforms of the international, quote-unquote, Palestinian soccer teams before Israel was even a sovereign state. In the 1930s, the, quote-unquote, Palestinian soccer team when they were on the road, there was like a magazine article. I saw images of this a few weeks ago in Australia. They were Jews. You know what their, you know what their logo was on the Palestinian soccer team's uniform from their exhibition matches in the 1930s? It was the Magandavi, the Star of David. There has never, ever, ever been such thing as a Palestinian state. 
ever. So what happens here is that status quo that I referred to there, the, the British mandates division between mandatory Palestine and the Emirate of Transjordan continues for 25, 26 years or so until the end of World War II. The world has a bit of, of a collective moment here to internalize what has happened in the Shoah, in the Holocaust. The UN gathers. They, uh, the General Assembly appoints a special committee on Palestine in November 1947, and they recommend a partition plan to the UN Security Council. This partition plan, a non-binding partition plan, but just an advisory partition plan in 1947, actually would divide uh, mandatory Palestine, Israel, the Holy Land between the river and the sea that actually would divide it roughly, roughly along the lines that the so-called Palestinians today want. Do you know who accepted that division? The Jews. Do you know who rejected it? The Arabs. Sure enough, May 1948, David Ben-Gurion in Tel Aviv declares Israeli independence. The Arabs in, uh, invade from all sides there. Miraculously, by the hand of God, by Hashem himself, they are defeated. The Jews have their own state. At that moment in time, under the international law principle, and here's the key legal point, under the international law principle of uti posaditis juris, it is a Latin term for, quote, as you possess under law, or as you may continue to possess such as you do possess. It is a standard rule for international law. Under that principle, Israel actually controlled Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, whatever you want to call it. How do I know that? Because uti posaditis juris means that when you have a new entity formed, it naturally inherits the borders of the last sovereign entity that existed there. Well, the last sovereign entity before the state of Israel was mandatory Palestine, which had the borders, again, from the river to the sea. Again, it was the Emirate of Transjordan that was supposed to be the original Palestinian state. 1967, six-day war happens. 19 years after the formation of Israel, the Arabs once again try to genocide the Jews once again through really a miraculous biblical-esque victory, the hand of God, no doubt, leading that himself there. The Jews once again manage to prevail. And that, only then, is when Israel manages to actually reacquire Judea and Samaria, the West Bank. They actually reacquire the Temple Mount, the Kotel, the Western Wall, the, the old city of, of, of Jerusalem. For the 19 years prior to that, Transjordan had illegally occupied it. They turned the Temple Mount, the holiest site in all of Judaism, into essentially a toilet. They raised down all the synagogues in the area. And that has essentially been the status quo ever since 1967. There has never, ever, ever been a Palestinian state. In fact, you can find people from the PLO, the terrorist organization founded by Yasser Arafat, the Palestine Liberation Organization. You will find quotes from them from the 1960s and 70s where they openly say that there has never historically actually been a Palestinian people, so to speak. They're just Arabs. Rather, they fabricated out of whole cloth this notion of Palestinian nationalism as a Cold War era tool to bludgeon the Jews with. It was a Soviet era fabrication as part of the Cold War between the Soviets and the Americans. The very notion of Palestinian nationalism is, is a historical fiction concocted by the progeny of Joseph Stalin in the Kremlin. That is, that is an actual honest to God fact. Nonetheless, in 2005, Israel made the catastrophic decision to disengage from the Gaza Strip. They said it was going to be a down payment on peace for a future Palestinian state. And, well, the results of that is what we covered on our episode earlier this week. You, you can go ahead and check that out. Suffice it to say, the results of that have been 
absolutely catastrophic and abysmal. Make no mistake about it. Historically speaking, there never was a Palestinian state. And now, after what has happened over the past week, I can assure you, there is never, ever, ever going to be one. The idea of a two-state solution has died. The original two-state solution, the British Mandate for Palestine solution, where the so-called Palestinian state was supposed to be Jordan, that is still on the table if the Jordanians want it. Hint, hint, they don't. See the Black September War of 1970. But there is never, ever, ever going to be an otherwise independent, quote-unquote, Palestinian state. Ever. The past week has confirmed that.